Left, right, and center. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, and Jim Chapman here. Welcome, guys. Nice to see you again. And you. Have you both of you together again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and thanks to both of you for sending good people in your stead when you couldn't make it. Uh, we had an interesting time with both Jim and with Lloyd, too, when they were in here the last couple of weeks. Uh, I want to take advantage of having the two of you to back together again to talk about something that we actually did talk about a couple of weeks ago. But uh, there are some more dimensions to this, and I've been doing some more thinking about it, too. And I don't want anybody to reach for the dial to change it when you hear the word I'm going to say, because I, I think we've got something new to talk about here. But I want to ask you about workfare. And uh, I've had the opportunity to discuss this issue with a number of people over the last few weeks, well, the last few years, really, but the last few weeks in particular. And uh, one of the things that I've been very fond of saying, and I know Bob has been fond of saying, too, is that government really can't or shouldn't create jobs. That's not government's, it's not government's business to do that, that they should get out of the way and allow the private sector to, to create the jobs and the prosperity that we need. And, and I've always taken that as kind of a, a, a basic tenet of my political philosophy. But the more I look at the issue of, of unemployment in our society and the more I look at the issue of, uh, of welfare, the more confused I become as to what the proper role of government is in relation to that. Now, I think we can probably dance all day long about whose responsibility is it to get an education, to, to make yourself available for the job market, to, to, to get marketable skills. I don't think anybody would disagree that basically it is the responsibility of the individual, but we also know that not every individual is going to accept that responsibility. And we've sort of decided as a society that people who won't accept that, we're not going to allow them to starve. We're not going to allow them to sleep in the streets, uh, even though you can make the case it's their own fault for being there. We've, as a compassionate society, we've said, well, we don't care whose fault it is. We're still going to take care of them. But I've had some interesting discussions the last little while with people talking about welfare and, say, and talking about workfare and saying, well, even a lot of the fans of workfare are, are becoming disenchanted, that it's not working as smoothly as they'd hoped. It's not, you know, it's creating all kinds of problems. The, the, the services aren't being delivered. Organized labor's in a snit over it. It's, it's, divide, it's being more divisive in our community. It's doing more harm than good. And the, the question was raised that maybe we need to rethink the whole idea of welfare. And maybe we need to turn away from the idea that you, you haven't got a job, so we will help you out. Instead of doing that, we should give you a job. We should give you a government, quote, government job. But we should do it not from the point of view of let's, let's have a tremendous make-work program. Let's, you know, create things or create needs that aren't there and then satisfy them with public funds by hiring these people who don't have jobs. Maybe instead of doing that, we should be looking at what needs to be done that isn't getting done. Are there things in our society that we'd like to see done that, that aren't getting done? Because A, either we, we, we haven't allocated funds for them, B, it's not cost productive for the private sector to do, and C, make up your own. And I thought this morning I'd like to ask both of you guys whether there's a, is there another alternative beyond the system we have today beyond the workfare as it's being proposed, do you think there's any way we could make that work where government would ultimately say to somebody, if you have exhausted all of your possibilities, and we will help you as much as we can to, to realize your, 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 your potential, but if you've exhausted all of your possibilities, you, you can't find a job, you don't have money, obviously you need money to survive, we're not going to give you a check, but we will give you a job. We don't want you to starve. We don't want you to have to live in the street. We will give you a job doing something worthwhile for the community. Now, it's not going to be voluntarily, voluntary in the sense that you can say, no, I don't want it, because it, that's not our approach. Our approach is 
we will help you if you want to be helped. If you don't want to be helped, then we wash our hands of you because what do you expect of us? Bob, is there any, can you see any, any value in doing something like that? Can you see any way we could make something like that work? No. Uh, I, I'm trying to listen to you there and trying to grasp some differentiation between what you're describing as the new idea from the old idea of workfare. Um, you know, a job is a job is a job. And a job is something that exists in a marketplace of free interaction. The moment that the government gets involved and starts taking money from people against their will, whatever they spend that money on cannot be called a job in the legitimate free market sense. Look at the word workfare. It's a, it's a complete oxymoron. It's, it's made up of the, some, some word that has something to do with employment, and the other half of the word has something to do with welfare. Well, you cannot mix those two things. You're either handing out welfare dollars or you are taking jobs away from some people to give to others. That's the only thing the government can do. Government does not create jobs. It displaces them. It moves them around. It takes them from some people and gives them to others. It's not capable of doing anything beyond that. But, Bob, wouldn't you say that... that uh, well, actually, I shouldn't. I'll, I'll let, ask Jeff what he thinks of that before I jump back in again. I think that there is a lot that could be done, and I think that uh, it's time that we have some creative thinking about uh, these things. And I think that uh, what we really need to do is to get some answers to some questions. And I think the fundamental one is, and this is, I think, what divides left-wingers and right-wingers, and that is, are people on welfare because they don't want to work, or are they on welfare for some other reason, like there's no jobs? Left-wingers say there's no jobs, that's why people are on welfare. Right-wingers say um, they're not working because they're not uh, motivated enough to go out and get a job. They need a kick in the pants to do it. And I think that what we need is to do an experiment to find out uh, some answers to these questions. And what, one of the things that I've heard talked about, which I think would make a lot of sense, we know that welfare right now for a single person is about half of what minimum wage is. And I would suggest the government come out with a program where they say, look, at anybody who wants it, we'll pay you two-thirds minimum wage uh, if you want to come out and do a job. And uh, we'll see who, who turns up. And my uh, belief is that a ton of people would turn up, um, you know, and, and basically by doing that, we find out the answer. Now, where it's complicated is with uh, when you come to children, and the reason for that is that uh, we have a soft spot in our society for children, and one of the soft spots is the that uh, the more children you have, the more welfare you get, and that is, it's not that much, say 150 bucks a month per extra kid, but uh, clearly, if you, and we hear this all the time, if you've got somebody who's um, got three kids, they make more money on welfare than they do on minimum wage. So somehow we have to separate out the idea of kids. And we've heard about things like child, a child benefit. At one point, that was batted around in the early 90s, where benefits were going to be provided to children separate from their parents. And if we did something like that, but could get back to a system where, okay, for now, we'll provide a minimum level of welfare, but we'll provide an incentive through a real job that will pay something less than minimum wage. If it pays minimum wage, then I suppose there would be complaints from the private sector about you know competing with them. But something between welfare and minimum wage, and try it. Offer these jobs and say, anybody on welfare who wants a job, uh, Mike Harris is going to provide you with one, he'll pay you somewhat more than welfare. Come out if you want to or don't. Let's see what happens. And say my belief, based on, on, on the people that I've met over the eight years that I've been working with uh, with poor people, is that you'll get a ton of people coming out. But at least we'd have an answer. Why don't one way we just another. get rid of minimum wage? Well, if we get rid of minimum wage, I don't know how that's going to really help it. Well, you just explained how they can now start paying some people less than minimum wage to create jobs. And this is what I've been saying all along, is that minimum wage is a job killer. 
So are, are some of the coercive tactics of unions, the way they monopolize certain sectors of labor. I'm not uh, saying that it's going to create jobs by, and by providing these job jobs. Killer. What you're saying is that if there wasn't a minimum wage, that the private sector might employ more people. And I don't know about that one way or another. But as far as whether or not uh, people would come out to jobs that are somewhere between minimum wage and welfare, I think they would. You I know, think I agree I, with you on that. I think what we have to do here, Bob, because I want to try to keep this uh, pract as practical as we can. Um, we're not, the minimum wage is not going to go away in our society today. There's no, as far as I see, there's no public will to do that. So well, I, there, there's a natural minimum wage in our society. It doesn't have to be legislated. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot, a lot of people who would work for less than minimum wage. You know, to me, recommending things like workfare to solve unemployment is like telling a cancer patient that he should smoke more cigarettes. Because workfare is funded through tax dollars. Mm -hmm. Taxes are the biggest job killer in the country. So you're 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 killing the host that you're but trying isn't to the milk. Point, isn't the point though that we're we're all, the point I'm trying to make here is we're already there. We are already facing the reality of Canada in 1998. Yes, we are overtaxed. We know that. Uh, are Canadians rioting in the streets about it? No, they not. Are they are, are they protesting? No. Are they defeating governments because of it? No, they're not. So I think we have to accept it, from a certain perspective that that we are prepared to live the way we are now. We are prepared to live with the minimum wage the way it is now. We are prepared to live with tax levels now. We complain about it, but we don't do much about it. My concern is, can we find, within that framework, within the existing framework... <laughs> you're, can, you're saying within a framework of not having to have any solutions possibly available to us, can we find a solution? No, no, but what I'm saying, Bob, is, is, is in, from a practical point of view, you, you, the three of us can sit here and discuss the philosophies till the cows come home. But that's what the issue's all but about, it's not gonna, The rubber's not going to hit the road tomorrow morning as a result. We're still going to get up tomorrow morning. We're still going to live in Canada. Well, we're going to live in the Canada. If what, today, if what we're doing today doesn't work, doing the same thing tomorrow won't work either. So, so what's your answer? Well, I'm saying, uh, do, know, we look at the do, middle here. do we look at doing other things tomorrow? Do we say tomorrow, all right, uh, we've gotten where we are because there's a certain sense of public will that we would be here, whether it's right or not, whether the public is misinformed or not. There's a certain sense of public will. There's a certain satisfaction with our government, aside from the fact that we all have complaints, but basically we're pretty complacent. The polls show that repeatedly, and, our, and the results of our elections show that repeatedly. We're fairly complacent. We're fairly satisfied with the kind of lifestyle we have. So given that reality, how can we fix the problem? Then we can't. We, we can't do it at all. Nope. There's no nope. solution. Nope. We're going to have more unemployment. We're going to have more riots in the streets because if we're going to stick to that mindset, there's no solution. And I'm not God, and I can't make things happen. I mean, it's but the other thing that's kind of daunting about that is that you know that you hear about uh, in the you switch from the uh, front section of the paper to the business section, and you hear about uh, unemployment rates and their relationship to inflation. And we hear this sort of ominous language over the years about a natural rate of unemployment and how unemployment can't be allowed to fall below 6 or 7%, otherwise it's inflationary, which is bad for the economy. We hear uh, uh, Gordon Thiessen, the uh, uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, saying, you know, if unemployment falls too far, he's going to raise interest rates to cool down the economy so that we don't have that happening. And it sort of, again, in my mind, comes back to, well, what's the deal here? Do we want full employment or not? And if we don't want full employment, if we want 6 or 7% of the people out of work, uh, what do we do with them? Well, that's my point. What do we do with them? Do we hand them a check as we do now, or do we give them a job doing something worthwhile? Let's go to the phones. The Tony joins us next here on Talk of the Town, left, right, and center. Hi, Tony. Good morning. I just had uh, a little problem with this job fair, work fair, whatever they're calling yeah. it now. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have a problem with is, uh, sure, you pay them, what, four bucks an hour to do a job instead of paying them a monthly check, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But don't most of that money go back into babysitting? For them to go out and work? Well, some of it would, I'm sure, yeah. But that, again, the money goes back into the into the economy. 
Yeah, but it goes back in the economy anyhow, doesn't it? If they sit at home and spend it at A&P or at Zellers or wherever. Or yeah, the but the, di the difference is we get no productivity out of that money other than its spendability by those folks. We The government gives them the money, says, yeah. here's the money oh. in exchange for nothing. What I'm asking, is there any way we could get something for the value of that money? The money will still go into the back into the economy, but we've added some value to it. Yeah, that's true, too, but, but there's I'm a just thinking, like, if you're making $900 off Mother's Allowance or welfare, right? Yeah. And you go out and work for the $900, you're mm -hmm. paying half of that going to a babysitter. Yeah. When half of that could have went towards the kids or towards mm -hmm. your rent or mm -hmm. towards something else. Oh, and that's a very good point. Before you go to work. That's a very good point. Tony, thanks for the call. Have a good morning. Bob, I want to ask you about that now. Should we, should we make an exception for single mothers with kids? Should we expect them to go out and work when we know that, all things being equal, that, that a positive home environment with a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home parent as far as we can tell, those kids have a better chance than if they're stuck in daycare or babysitters from when they're six months old. Well, now you're getting back to an issue of fundamental welfare, which is a little more honest in terms of what we're calling the program. If you're just going to hand money over, uh, if that's a decision we make, that's wonderful. But it would be wonderful if that decision wasn't a voluntary one and not forced upon people who sometimes cannot afford to make contributions. You know, you say that, that through some form of, of, of workfare that you get added value to the money that you're already spending. That's not really true. It's a displacement of value again. You can only get value out of money when it's being voluntarily traded. The minute one party in an equation is forced to spend their money, they're getting reduced value. So whatever added value you might measure that you are giving to someone to do something to, for the money they were getting free anyway, that has been taken away more from the person that the money came from. I wouldn't from. argue that with you, but I would say, though, that if you're going to... So society doesn't benefit in the net. It loses in the net. Well, I don't think it benefits if you've added value along the way. Maybe you minimize the loss. I mean, if, 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 if the, the tax man... Well, takes, that's one way of looking well, at it. Well, if the tax okay. man takes money from you, though, involuntarily, as you say, and says, give me your money, Bob, and you have to give him what he wants, and you do that... Is it not more productive for society as a whole if that money he's extorted from you at least is used to acquire some good or service for the public wealth? Is it, though? You know, because I'm second thinking this again. I'm looking at, okay, let's assume that it does even cut some losses in terms of value. But then again, that person's job is taking away some job from somebody somewhere. Is it? Is it? Well, that might exist otherwise. We didn't have things like minimum wages. All we're doing now is, is making up a fancy excuse to pay people less than minimum wage. Okay, let's go back to the phones with caller Pete. Hi, Pete. Hi. Yes, sir. Um, okay, first of all, you'd have to determine whether people are going to be able to work or not, right? Y yeah. Okay, now if, if you're you not able to work, you should be on a disability anyway. I, I, I would guess that all three of us would agree with that. Would, would okay. We? Yes, okay. Now, if you are able to work, how about, okay, our police force is short, right? Yes. Okay, why don't we take some of these people and instead of giving them a welfare check, give them a paycheck. Put them out on the street, patrol streets. Let's make the city feel safer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we're not taking jobs away from somebody because that job's not there right now anyway. Well, what about that, Bob? What about creating jobs that don't appear to be there now at all? Your argument, I think, would be that they would be there if we, if all the, all the things were equal. We didn't have to pay as many taxes. We could pay more taxes for police and have more police officers. Right. You're you're just you're just uh, shifting things around again. You know. If, Yes, we need basic services like police and fire, but even those are, are, are generally bloated in terms of the money that we have to pay for them in terms of what we can actually get in, in, in return. But these are decisions we make politically. 
Um, you cannot just manufacture jobs out of the air and put people to work for things that aren't needed. It might be nice to have police officers walking down the street, and it might make people feel safer, but whether it creates anything productive or not, or whether it would demonstrably change anything, uh, that has to be demonstrated, and I haven't seen that. Bob, do you, what, do you, what do you say about this natural rate of unemployment? Do, do you buy that, or no. do you think that uh, no. unemployment is ever a part of a healthy economy? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, I think it's a shift. I don't think governments should be manipulating interest rates. I don't think governments should be manipulating employment and unemployment. That's the marketplace to do. That's that, And the marketplace being people, making their choices in the market so that we know where the capital's going, we know what they're buying, we know where we should be putting our efforts in, the terms, of, in terms of what people want. You know, government spending is always in terms of what people don't want. I mean, otherwise we'd be spending our money. You wouldn't have to have somebody come as a third party and take the money out of your pocket. Pete, appreciate your call, sir. No problem. Thanks for joining us. No and Bert's up next. Hi, Bert. Hi. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm calling about the lady who called before this last gentleman. Mm -hmm. She said that uh, half the money would be used for babysitting. Yes. But I think, you know, lots of single moms know lots of single moms. Mm -hmm. I'm a single parent, and I know other single parents. Yes. I need my kids that. You know, I, I'll sit their kids, they sit my kids. Right. There's good in getting up, going out, and going to work. Mm -hmm. It's good for your self-esteem, and it's good for the economy. I don't think you lose any, that the people would lose any money if they work together. No, you know, parents should work together. You bring up a great point here, too, because isn't it funny that uh, you're talking about, for example, child care, an area where there's probably a tremendous demand. And all kinds of people, this to me seems to be a natural area for a lot of people to create jobs. But no, our whole daycare system is becoming more centralized. The government's getting into funding it. And that cuts all kinds of people out. You have to have all kinds of, uh, you know, certificates from the government to prove that you can to look after children. It's like the corner babysitter is no longer a, a, a viable economic option. And most of the people who are doing that have to hide from the government so that they don't know that they're making the extra money. Problem is, if you know, what happened, though, is that uh, if you don't have the regulations, there'll be some horror story that come along the... the, the uh Fecal there material will hit the fan, well, as they say. Well, there are horror stories in every system, and I've heard horror stories in the government-run systems. And yeah. you just plan the odds. It's up to the parent to make sure that the person that they leave their children, to, you know, in, in the care of their children, is somebody trustworthy. I mean, but it makes sense that uh, obviously the, the the child care is one of the, the most important jobs in our society, and that you could be sharing that around. Um, like the uh, first thing that occurred to me was that obviously the government would have to recognize child care as one of the jobs that they would be prepared to fund. Um, for this to work, because otherwise all the single parents would be off doing something else no, with I think, the kids you know, in the daycare. I think if, if the government said tomorrow that anybody who's in the ch personal child care business in their home will not have to pay tax on that money, the, the daycare problem in this province would be solved. Last thought to you, Bert? Well, I just think they should work, you know, working together, making it a, making it like these two gentlemen are saying, making it some kind of business mm -hmm. for people to, you know, be motivated to take care of other kids. That I don't think that's going to make it any better. Mm. I think they should be motivated on their own. Well, you know, you're my friend, I'll watch your kid, and yeah. you watch my kid. I think that creates a more of a, a happier atmosphere for the kid and for the people who, who are doing it for more each other. More of a sense of community, too. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks very much, Bert. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Teresa's up next on Left, Right, and Center. Hi, Teresa. Hello. Hello. Oh, yes, Hi. go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say I have been through the system before, mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody realizes how difficult it is to get out of the system. Yeah. And I am out of it now. I've been out of it now for about four years, but they encourage you to stay on it, basically. Like, I was on Mother's Allowance. Yeah. And 
I think the way it should work is because while I was on it, I did work a little bit because you can only make a certain amount of money mm-hmm. before it affects how yeah. much they give you. Right. I think the way it should work is those people that do want to work, especially like on Mother's Allowance, cause that's all I know about, is that if you get a job doing whatever, however many hours a week, they should just deduct that from what they're giving you until eventually you can get off of it. Mm-hmm. Because you're not allowed to have anything. You're not allowed to have like X amount of dollars in a savings account or anything like that. Yeah. If you have too much, then they say, well, then you don't need it, but you can't, you can't get ahead to get off of it. Mm-hmm. And when I went to sign off of it, I had like three people in the office saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yes, I am very sure. Get so, me out of here. So, what, so what, how do you, you think there should be a, a the, the mother's allowance should be there. And then if you get a job, even mm-hmm. a part-time job, they should deduct that from what you get from Mother's Allowance? Yes. And, is, and, and then, isn't that what they do now? No. No, they don't. You're allowed to make a certain amount. I, I'm not 100, sure what it is. About 100 to like bucks a month. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then they take everything that, beyond that. And then after that, it affects your check so okay. that you're, you're not making as much on your check, but with your check and what you've made in your job, it doesn't add up to what you would have made if you just strictly were... We're on mother's allowance. Right, right. Well, that feeds into the whole complexity. You're, you're right that uh, when I advise people, uh, like theoretically, you can become self-employed, for instance, on uh, benefits. But what will happen is they won't allow you most of your business mm-hmm. expenses. So if you do that, you end up with far less money, even though you're working than you were before. And the system is so complicated that it, that it does sort of have that trap. And mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it would be a lot simpler if they just said, if you make money, we'll just take it off your check. Mm-hmm. You know, and once you get to the point where you're making more than your check, then right. you're ahead of the game and you're gone. Exactly. I think that would be so much easier because... I want it to work, but I mean, half the time, it wasn't even worth it to work, I mean, when you consider driving to your job and what have you. But I'm still confused, Teresa. It seems to me that if you said to somebody, if you get a job, mm-hmm. we're going to take it off your check, mm-hmm. well, I don't see the incentive to work there. Because well, you, I'm saying if you already have the incentive to work, you don't want to be... Well, if you want... Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so if you're already motivated to yeah, work, th- then, if, yeah. if you're like, like, I didn't want my child growing up right. knowing that mommy's going to get her check. Right, you know? I hear I, you. Yeah. I did not want him to, you know, yeah. know about this. Yeah, I hear you. So, Teresa, I, thanks for calling today. You're welcome. It's good to hear from you. Bye now. Six four three twelve ninety, and we've got Gord with us. Hi, Gord. Hi. Yes, sir. Hello. Yeah. Oh, hey. How you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a big advocate that you can catch more uh, flies with honey than vinegar. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big things I think is training. Yeah. And I talked to you about this about a year ago or so, where if you get an incentive to the employer or employee, let's say if the employer trains somebody, and at the end of it, uh, whatever period of time. They take a government test to say they're certified in whatever training. Yeah. Then that employer would get uh, <clears throat> like a tax incentive or get percentage or maybe the whole amount amount of that uh, employer's wages back. Yeah. And the employee, of course, would get trained. And if he doesn't pass the test, then he's not. I guess he doesn't. Not he's not eligible for let's say UI or whatever. In case he has to use it for that. Yeah. So that gives him incentive that he's got to learn. He's got to pass this test, and if he doesn't pass it, also the employer doesn't get reimbursed. So what about the people that don't pass it, though? Because there are a lot of people out there in, in among the ranks of the unemployed who've had problems in school, who've had problems learning and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for us to say, well, you know, you got to do it. you got to learn this. you got to pass this test. For some people, that's a real problem. That's true, but that's an incentive to, for the employer to hire the right person mm-hmm. and for the employee not to waste their time to yeah. take something that they're not eligible for. Okay, Gord, thanks for the thoughts today.
Thank you, sir. Good to hear from you. Okay. From Gord to Gord. Hello, Gord. Hello, Jim. Yes, sir. I'd just like to clarify this idea of uh, a natural rate of unemployment. Mm -hmm. uh, Milton Friedman meant that there would always be people uh, changing jobs and people would go out of business through market uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. He did not mean that governments could manipulate the inflation rate to cause unemployment. What his uh, point about inflation was that inflation causes unemployment. And he proved that by pointing to inflation starting at 1% in 1960 and 13% in 1979. And along with this, the unemployment rate went up. Now, under the current conditions in the United States, inflation is approximately 2% and unemployment is approximately 4%. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like to clarify that right. so we don't get any false information All about right. what that means. Alrighty. Now, the second point is I don't think Bob understood your point. And I think what your point was, Jim, was that the, the solution to what we have now is to do exactly the same thing, only do it harder, and we do more of it. Was that not the point? No, I, I don't know what we should do. What my, my question is that, or my, 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 my conundrum is that we do seem to be, and I, and I take, Bob was right when he says, you know, if you don't try to change things or if you're not, you know, you do the same thing tomorrow you did today, you're going to be equally stuck. But, but I'm, I'm trying to come to grips with the reality of the society in which we live. And while we're, you know, you want to work to change that to, for whatever your own ideology tells you is best, the reality is we're still going to get up tomorrow living in Canada in 1998. And I'm trying to see, are there, are there things we could well, do... Well, what does that mean, though, when you say we're going to wake up to 1998? That obviously implies that nothing will change. Well, the, 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 the simple fact of history is that in the short term, things seldom do change. In the long terms, they do. We see these great sea changes in, in people's attitudes and so on towards uh, left-wing, right-wing, whatever. They do change over the long term, but over the short, in the short term, they don't. What I'm wondering is, <laughs> is there anything we can do tomorrow or next week or next month to make this system work any more efficiently? I would say no. The only way we can solve any problems, I think, on a, on a broad scale that apply to individuals uh, is if individuals change their behavior. Mm -hmm. So you, I, don't, you don't think we can tinker? I, There's no point in tinkering. Jim, I don't think people signing pieces of paper and stamping pieces of paper and giving orders from on high are going to solve any problems. I don't, I don't see solutions through a police state. I don't see solutions through a welfare state. I mean, the, the welfare state is merely a rubber stamping of ideas that, that can be forced upon the populace. Yeah, but the, popula the populace, most of the populace, in my experience, accepts that. Yeah, but we used to also accept one-time feudalism and absolute monarchy. Yeah, we, we did, and, over, that, and, that, and, that, and again, that. over the period of time, there were sea changes yeah, in our attitudes. Be, you would be arguing at that time that, well, given the fact that we have an absolute monarchy and that we want to change things, given that framework, what can we do? Well, obviously nothing, because then we'd have an absolute monarchy forever. Except that, I think, if you look at the historical record, it is not quite that cut and dried. Because, if, just as I was reading last night about the Restoration in England and, and the, uh, the attempts by, uh, by Charles II to increase the power of the monarchy, to make it more of an absolute monarchy, and all the uh, tensions and so on that happened throughout society while he was trying to do this, and ultimately he failed. Okay, ultimately, I'll give you a better example. It didn't work. I'll give you a better example than that, though, and that is John Locke. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book, and Thomas Jefferson implemented it. Yes. And I'd say that was a greater 
uh, sea change in society than anything you know, you got, but political. Again, I, again, I, would say, yeah. I would say philosophy is what changes the world. Nothing political has ever changed the world except killed people. That would be it. I would say religion and politics, especially when mixed, are not a solution to anything. And the only proper solution is a change in the philosophical ideas that we hold. All right, Gord, thanks for the call today. Okay. This is Talk of the Town on 1290 CJBK. It being Wednesday in the final hour of the program, Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz. And we'll continue our program and more of your calls right after this. This is our regular Wednesday feature, Left, Right, and Center, where we take a look at the issues of the day from some differing political perspectives, and we're always interested in having you join us to share yours. Let's go to the phones now with caller Rick. Hi, Rick. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Um, myself, I really don't think uh, this problem's ever going to go away, but what I would like to see is for every hour of charity work you do, you'll increase how much money that you'll receive, and that would be an incentive for people to know they can get out, uh, you know, get used to... Uh, you know, being out during the day and doing things. And so you really, could so you could earn extra bonus points for doing community work. Yeah, and it wouldn't take anyone's job away, and it would help out. You know, I'm sure there's uh, like Meals mm -hmm. on Wheels and stuff would always yeah. uh, welcome extra help, and uh, you know, and it would give them a chance to get out and. Now that's a very interesting idea, Rick. Thanks for the call today. Okay. Let me ask you, gentlemen, about that. What What about the idea of extra bonus points for extra community service over and above your basic stipend? On On an individual basis, you know, locked in that box of handing that money over, I can't see anything wrong with that particular idea. I mean, uh, Jeff, what about you? No, I think it's a great idea. That's what they need to do. Okay, there you go. Hey, a rare moment yeah. of unanimity here. Clever <laughs> and Matt's on <laughs> left, right, and center. John's our next caller. Hi, John. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Glad to see everyone getting along. Fun. <laughs> uh, never mind taking jobs away from people. There are there's jobs out there in agriculture too mm -hmm. that are just like they're needed. People are needed, yeah. and the, and a lot of the farmers are have having to hire outside the country. Yeah, bring people in from Jamaica or whatever. Hundreds of them. Because the people here don't want to work. What do those jobs pay? A uh, hundred bucks a day, ninety to a hundred bucks a day. So that's ab above and tobacco, above, strawberries, well above whatever. minimum wage. Then pardon me. It's well above minimum yeah. wage. Then nine, ten dollars an hour. And can't find people to do them. Can't find people to do them. They have to board. They have to pay. The, the farmers are paying thousands of dollars to have these people come from Jamaica. They're boarding them to, because the local people aren't working. Yeah, we've talked about this before, and, and uh, part of the of course, there are lots of people in, in Ontario who do take a lot of these jobs, but uh, part of the problem is that uh, it's difficult for a lot of people to get down to these things and back because of restrictions from the welfare office that they make it difficult for you to travel to work, for instance. If you are boarding somewhere away from your home, um, then you're deemed to have been split up. Uh, and uh, then your benefits are family benefits are cut way back. These are systemic things that should be fixed because you're right. We should have Ontarians doing these jobs. But they won't need the benefits cut back if they do have a job. And a lot of times the farmer will, the farmer will drive to Toronto Airport to pick them up. But again, what happens is that uh, this is temporary work. You go to get back on benefits. There are delays in getting back on. In the meantime, your file gets screwed up because there's a disagreement about uh, you know a delay in getting some uh, document from the farmer. Blah blah blah. It, it, the system makes it very difficult for people to take initiative like that. Well, the work is there. Craig, yeah, or, I agree, John. It's a good idea. I appreciate the call, sir. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Let me ask both you guys now. We are, um, if we're not there already, we are moving just as fast as we can into a, a computerized world. 
Is government way behind? Are we way behind in these kinds of things in, in accessing the, the positives of information exchange and retrieval? What I mean by that is it's still very cumbersome. And, Jeff, you just alluded to it about uh, somebody who takes this job and then they have trouble getting back on because you got paperwork, you got reports, you got files, you got this, you got that. Couldn't we devise a system that was much simpler than that so it's something you know there's one number or there's we've got one contact point say i've got the opportunity to go and work picking tobacco for for two months and i'm going to go to me i see that as another job opportunity for somebody to, to be doing privately being an employment uh, liaison or something like that but that doesn't but help make it so complicated in the first place that, so doesn't need help that. that doesn't help you with the government bureaucracy yeah. no i'm not talking about government i'm saying get the government out of even helping people find jobs the government is not only not behind the government's interest it's motivation is completely divorced from anything to do with productivity in the marketplace. You know, Jeff, you talk about systemic things that need to be fixed in a welfare system. Well, those systemic things are what make it a welfare system. Okay. That, that, but that's, that speaks to the whole problem. The, the, the welfare is feeding the whole problem. It's, it's creating situation where, like John the Caller says, that, you know, Farmers in agriculture can't find help, and, and and people can't find daycare, and people can't find all this because all the government is doing is monopolizing. But I'm not saying government employees. should help people get jobs. I'm saying they should stay the hell out of the way. If you've got a farmer who wants well, to hire a guy, way, government should stand back and say, somebody. great, go for it. But I'll give you a perfect example, and, and of course I do welfare law for a living. We received uh, uh, the new welfare laws that the province has just passed about, uh, well, May 1st. Uh, there were 800 pages of new laws that uh, every welfare worker, everybody on welfare is deemed to know. Of course, nobody does know. They're extremely complicated and deal with all this tiny stuff. We just got our June update. The June update says, please throw out the previous 800 pages. It's all been changed. You know, it's just it's just a nightmare to do this. The typical welfare file now is uh, four times, at least four and times thicker than it was three years the ago. The people who are writing those 800 pages have their own jobs to protect. They're doing their own job creation. You know, that's what they're doing. And that job is not a job that needs to be done. Well, part of it. But, but that's the problem. They should get out of the way and say, look, well, if you've got an opportunity, go for it. We're not going to stand in the way of doing this. you're telling me to lay out that, that we should lay off every government bureaucrat, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the phones with caller Danny. Hi, Dan. Well, hi, Jim. Yeah, just uh, uh, a caution here about going too fast on fixing all our social ills and so forth. Because I, I, with uh, our inefficient bureaucracy and, and socialism and so on, can't think of a better poison pill to make sure that we're not... Uh, consumed in the United States too quickly. I don't think they'd be uh, too uh, in much of a rush to pick up the uh, pick up all that load. Not sure I follow you there, Denny. Are you saying that we would the U.S. would suddenly take over Canada because we fixed our welfare system? Well, that would be a concern, wouldn't it? Like there were there were at least that's in the business papers this morning. They uh, the uh, concern about U.S. banks coming in and and uh, all of that sort of stuff. But if we are you saying Keep that our social system and, and bureaucracy the way they are, it's going to be a lot less attractive. I think that... Well, uh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we do keep them that way, it will be a lot less attractive. So obviously the answer is we do have to change them, and yet you're saying you don't want to see things fixed too fast. Oh, well, no, actually I'm more on the other side of it, but uh, we may look on our uh, some of these uh, people who are creating the problems in the social system as heroes down the road. They're actually saving Canada for Canadians. I appreciate the call today. All right. Thanks, Denny. Interesting idea. I think, uh, let me change the focus just a teeny weeny bit. I read something fascinating a few months ago, a fellow who was writing about the, the possibility of Canadian breakup and the uh, uh, accommodations that the Americans might make. Because many Canadians do have this fear that, you know, if something goes wrong, the Americans are going to swoop us and 
take us away. It's a very interesting theory this fellow had. We've got 10% of uh, the American population here in Canada. Uh, discount Quebec, it's something like 7% or 6.5%. Uh, he pointed out that the American, the powers that be in the United States do not want their boat rocked either. If, for example, Ontario were to be admitted to the United States, it becomes one of the, one of the larger states, uh, physically the largest state, uh, economically one of the larger states in the United States, and politically would have a lot of clout in the U.S. Congress. And he pointed out, the writer pointed out, that there are, uh, the, uh, many of the political powers of the United States, the last thing they want is to absorb, to bring new states in there and throw the thing out of balance. They're already having enough trouble juggling, keeping all the balls in the air and juggling the various competing interests from coast to coast and all the way to Hawaii and as far north as Alaska. I agree, and as long as you've got policies like free trade in place, there's no reason for anybody to take over anybody. Armies cross borders when goods, ref when goods no longer do. That's when armies start crossing borders. As long as the goods are crossing the borders, there's nothing to go over there to get. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones with caller Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Good morning. Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to bring attention, I don't know if you'd read this or not, last Wednesday's London Free Press, mm -hmm. there was an article about high-tech uh, jobs Yes. in uh, yeah. Ontario here, mm -hmm. and about the, all the companies wanting to bring people in from overseas to fill these, when, but at the same time complaining about all of the, the high-tech resources going overseas from Canada because no one will hire them because they don't have experience. Yeah. And it seems to me like you can't have it both ways. If you want to start fixing welfare and all the social benefits, hire Canadians instead of bringing them in from overseas. But isn't the problem that matching the, the, matching the skill to the job I mean, I talk to people about this all the time, and it seems that, yeah, we've got training programs, we're training people for jobs that aren't there. We have, uh, you know, your comment about people leaving because they can't get work here because they don't have experience. Um, if you're talking particularly about information technology and computer technology, there's actually two different things working there. Yes, we do have some people who can't get the kind of jobs they want. They can't get the starting salaries they want here because we don't have quite the demand they have south of the border. But anybody that's got skill, anybody that's got computer skills in Canada today uh, and has got even a modicum of personal skills to go with it is likely going to find employment. The problem is we don't have enough people with those skills. And who do you blame for that? I think it's a school system. We have illiterates out there, people who cannot functionally read and write well, when they're in the job but you market. Can also, you they can will also, never compete with you all You can those also people. blame, and I, I'm, I'm not taking any of the weight away from the schools, but you can also blame the individuals. I mean, we're all, we're all blessed with brains. Nobody would suggest that everybody on welfare is stupid. So they've also had the opportunity in their lives to, to make some decisions, and, and some of them have made bad decisions. Some of them are where they are through no fault of their own, but other people now are facing a reality where where I can't find a job because I don't have the skills I need to do that. I had the opportunity at various points in my life to get those skills. For whatever reason, I didn't get them. So please don't beat me up for that. But the reality is I don't have the skills I need right now. And we can't always give those people those skills. You can't always take a 45 or 50-year-old individual who's been out of school for 30 years and make them a, a state-of-the-art, up-to-the-minute, computer technical specialist. I, I've watched all kinds of people in that age group well, I, I shouldn't walk use over the, that line okay, without all right, even all right. blinking once. Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay. Computers I, are so simple today, and you can train anybody in almost any aspect. I think the most important thing out there is attitude. When I used to hire people for a big trust company, I I looked at their skills second. I looked at their attitude first because mm -hmm. I knew that anybody could learn anything. Mm -hmm. And I brought in people who maybe knew nothing skill-wise and became some of my top people independently running because 
you just knew from the way you met the person and the attitude, this person was going to motivate themselves. Yeah. They were going to get in there and they do the job and anybody can do well, it. Well, you see, really, that, that, that's the point I was trying to make. You put a lot better than I did. That unless you've got these people who, who are motivated and, and, and if you've spent a lifetime not being motivated, yeah, but we're it putting all these difficult. things in their place, in their way, not to motivate them, to demotivate them. Yes, there is a big issue about individuals being responsible for themselves, but if we as a government and society are placing more obstacles or putting the wrong carrots in the, in, in the way, like making welfare look more attractive than getting a job for economic reasons, that's a rational decision to me. If I'm making more money on welfare than I would on, on this job, I'm going to stay on welfare. But I mean, isn't that, it, isn't it, if you're cutting interest. welfare to motivate welfare people, aren't you giving an unfair advantage to them because they'll be a much more motivated than the middle class, the it, upper class? If you're, if you're which? If, if you're, you cut welfare to motivate poor people to work harder and do better, isn't that giving them an unfair advantage because they'll be so much more motivated than middle class and upper class people? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I might go along with that. You know? <laughs> I, I can't. How many millionaires have I heard say that if if they didn't have a fire under their rear end, they'd never got up and and got to where they were? Well, not know? Bill Gates because he was a rich kid. Well, Jonathan, the last word to you. Um, well, I also wanted to mention that these uh, firms are hiring for their upper upper skill level yes. positions. Yes. Um, it seems to me that wouldn't it be better off if they promoted from within than hired people with less lesser skills at the bottom instead of bringing people in from other countries to fill these upper Well, I, I think I'll, you'll find that a lot of those corporations don't have the skills within their corporations to promote upwardly, particularly today when, they, when the technology is expanding the way it is. And not all the time. Mm -hmm. But I know of one particular company I'm very familiar with in the, in the city here, a lot of their senior technical people are leaving because there are new opportunities opening up. And they have to fill those spots any place they can. They can't necessarily fill them from the lower echelons because those people may not have the experience to do the job. So it's a little more complicated than just to say that, you know, they're bringing people in from outside and they won't give our people a chance. In many cases, our people aren't ready for it because it's expanding so fast. The whole market is expanding so fast. Jonathan, great to hear from you today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Ivo's with us. Good morning, Ivo. Oh, hi. How are you, Jim? Fine, thank you. Uh, well, Jim, I think the whole problem or most of it is uh, willingness to work and uh, sacrifice. If I can give you an example, obviously hear my accent. Uh, my family and I came 12 years ago one three-year-old kid, uh, my wife, two suitcases, and one dollar in our pocket. Mm -hmm. It was U.S., so we were better off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is we got a little bit of uh, help from the government, and uh, then I worked two, three jobs. My wife, uh, she's a medical doctor. She used to sort corn at Pillsbury. So hard work, long hours, and uh, now we do live our American dream house, swimming pool, two cars, vacation. I do put 80 hours a week work. So I think it's hard work and willingness to work hardly and sacrifice. That's all. All right. Thank you for the call, sir. Thank you. We're going to pause for a moment or two. We'll be back with more Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town. Left, right and Center with Schlemmer and Metz. We're right back to the phones with caller Ian. Good morning, Ian. Uh, good morning, Jim. Yes, sir. Uh, there used to be... Ten states in the United States that had no minimum wage. There were most of them were in the southern United States. Yeah, that's been eliminated. They all have a minimum wage now, mm -hmm. and the unemployment rate is the lowest in what 50 years or whatever. Is the lowest? Lowest, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the unemployment rate now is ridiculous. It's uh, I think it's uh, four, less than four percent or something. Now, do, do you think that there's necessarily a correlation between those two? Let's not forget that the Amer the great parts of the United States are in the midst of a major economic boom. That's true. I'm not saying it's definitely a correlation, but by 
by saying, well, if we get rid of the minimum wage, uh, uh, there should be zillions of jobs created. I don't believe, I don't buy that. You don't think you don't think it would happen at all, or that it just wouldn't necessarily be massively successful? No, I don't think it'd be massively successful. I'm I'm sure that uh, people have a they're not going to work for for if it's uh, if the wage is ridiculous. They're not going to say I'm not going out there for fifty four cents an hour. You That's know? exactly what I say when I when I or what I mean when I say that people have their own minimum wage. That's why you don't need a government to legislate it. I know all kinds of people who will tell you they won't work for less than fifteen bucks an hour, and that's way above minimum wage. Well, well, then why did they legislate it in? Because some people there are there's that there's that you know fractional part of people who who will work at a less than a certain amount of wages, and and labor movements and and other political interests believe that that takes away jobs from other people. No, the reason they brought in was because of the sweatshops in the United States in the 18, late 1800s. You know, the people were working in abysmal conditions. That's why the health and safety standards came in as well. The, the society as a whole just decided people shouldn't have to work exist. under these horrible, sweatshops dangerous conditions. Sweatshops exist today in, in areas of the United States where they have to avoid the minimum wage, and some of them, that's where they get into trouble. Is because that's why they're there. Is because but, they're, they're but do they have to avoid the minimum wage, or are they simply doing it to maximize profits well, illegally? To maximize profits illegally because the the illegality of it gives them that option. But the other issue too is that the people who are in there are doing it because it improves the condition in which they were before. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. Wow. You know, all you're doing when you say uh, we're going to get eliminate sweatshops, you've eliminated that another sector of the of the of the employment market and you increase employment that it's much more pretty grim it's all, sector it's all, every, all the action happens out there in the fringes and in, and in the and in the uh, marginal areas of society i mean even during the great depression most people were still employed if you're talking ma major mm -hmm. proportions mm -hmm. so we're always talking in that fringe area and usually you know if i hear a case like this where uh, minimum wages come in and they have the lowest unemployment well that's probably because the minimum wage is irrelevant Appreciate, people are being appreciate the call, Ian. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Good to hear from you. Bye-bye. And, well, I was going to give the phone number, but there's not much point because the program is just about over. As we'd like to do at the end, I want to give each of my uh, each of my co-hosts this morning uh, 30 seconds or so to kind of sum up what we've talked about. Uh, Jeff, what have we learned today? Well, we've sort of been all over the map today, but uh, to go back to where we started on the workfare thing, I guess uh, from my end of it, I really wish the government could sort of try and depoliticize it and say, look, at we need, we've got this fundamental question. Do people on welfare exist there because they don't want to work or because there's no jobs or something else? Let's try and find out. Let's do some experiments. And to say the idea of offering them jobs that would pay them slightly more than welfare, I think, is a good way to go about it. But what they have right now is a system where they purport to force everybody to uh, do this work um, for, for no benefit at all. Uh, the result of that is that they've got this huge bureaucracy that's costing them a mint and uh, really isn't helping the poor at all. Robert? Um, if I were going to offer a solution to the, the, the number one thing that I would do in a government to create more jobs would be to lower taxes. I don't think there's any other single individual cause that, that we could attribute that creates more unemployment than high taxes. And uh, if there was any advice I was going to pass along to the Harris government, is hooray for the fact that they're going ahead with that one policy. Uh, it's the one commitment that I see that they do have to uh, both the consumer of this province and to the unemployed. Gentlemen, thank you. A pleasure as always. Thanks. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz will be back next Wednesday for the next edition of Left, Right, and Center. We'll be back tomorrow with the next edition of Talk of the Town. Tara, who's on tomorrow? Quick.
quick, quick, quick. Who's on first? Yeah, who's on first? Who's on second? <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let you know about that. We invite you to join us for tomorrow's program. For Jeff and for Bob and for Ryan and for the thoroughly rattled Tara, it's Jim saying, take care of each other. Mind how you're going. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.